Guys, go back with me to uh, Romans chapter 10, and let's, um, uh, we don't have a whole lot of time, but uh, we'll try to redeem it as best we can. Gang, um, let, let, let me try to set you just a little bit of context here, and just remind you what's going on. I, you know, I, 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 that might sound like preacher talk, but at the end of chapter 9, Paul makes a statement about Israel and Israel who were, were, were um, they pursued righteousness, a righteousness through law um, that did not succeed. That's in verse 31. And, and the Gentiles in verse 30, um, they, they have attained that righteousness because they pursued it by faith. So Israel pursued it by law and they didn't attain it. And he says in verse 32, why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. Now, having said that, chapter 10 is a commentary on that. He says, Israel failed to get to the right place because they pursued it wrong. They, they didn't go about it the right way. And as a result, Gentiles who um, maybe started out badly, uh, understood rightly, and pursued righteousness by faith. Israel pursued it by law, and Israel failed. So my, my point in all that is, Romans chapter 10 is really a celebration of faith. Now, he begins by groaning over the condition of Israel. Yes, but if you if you went through the book of I mean chapter ten and just underline the number of times that you see the word faith, it it might it might alarm you. I, I did not count them, but there's a bunch of them in there. And you may recall that when we got to verses nine and ten, I told you that it was a it was a definition of saving faith, uh, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that you will be. We spent probably six weeks on verses 9 and 10, maybe more. But Romans chapter 10 is celebrating uh, not so much Israel's failure, but explaining why Israel failed because she pursued it by law, not by faith. So chapter 10 is this, is this commentary on what is this faith that I'm talking about? Remember, oh, I just love those verses up in 6 and 7 about Israel's trying to make it really hard by saying you've got to go on this great quest. And he says, no, no, it's as near as your mouth. It's, 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 it's just laying claim to the great promises that God has made you. That is what faith is. And so he, he gives you this great definition of saving faith. And then, and then he launches into this, <clears throat> this thing about how uh, anybody's going to ever hear about that. Uh, some, how are they going to hear if they haven't been sent? How are they going to be sent? All that business. And we, we, we talked about that. Um, and how can they preach unless they are sent? We talked about a calling to the ministry. And then, uh, and then down in verse 17, it says, so faith comes from, from hearing. There it is. I mean, he's really wrapping up his argument. And it's this faith that Israel didn't possess uh, that doomed them. Um, but he, uh, the right path is one that is marked off not by law effort, but by faith. 
And then he says in verse 17, that faith comes from hearing. And we talked about that, that there is a hearing and there's a hearing. There's a hearing with a little h, a mechanical uh, hammer, anvil, and stirrups kind of hearing. And then there's a hearing, a hearing that God the Holy Spirit authors. And it's and it becomes not simply a mechanical outward hearing, but an inward spiritual hearing. And so then last week I said, okay, then what are some key characteristics of that hearing? How do I know whether I have heard aright? And I said there were two things, and one of them I, we looked at last week. He, he says in verse uh, 16, but they have not obeyed the gospel. That is, one of the characteristics of a right hearing of, of the gospel is that it is obedient. And we talked about the, the trickiness of, of um, making sure that we don't um, turn the gospel into obedience, but that a, a very clear expression of right hearing is an, a, a pursuit of obedience. And then I said there was another earmark. And this one, guys, I, I want to lift out of this text. that I, it's, it's not mentioned there, but I think it is there. And it's not something that we talk about much in the Christian church, and I thought it was worth at least 25 minutes of our time. And it's that statement in verse 16 but they have not all, all obeyed the gospel for Isaiah... I'm sorry, it's in verse 15. And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, this sentence, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Now, guys, um, when, when, you, when you're trying to study your Bibles, you've got you to do more than... Um, i tell you what, I'm going to tell you a quick story that I heard another preacher... This did not happen to me. It happened to a preacher friend of mine. Um, but it, it has to do with how, how to rightly study one's Bible. And he said, uh, I was in a Bible study and a woman was teaching the Bible study. And it was about, it was, uh, I think he said he was, he was young. He was maybe a 10th grader, 9th grader, whatever he was. And the woman that was teaching the Bible study, um, it was like it was, uh, 25 boys. And she said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take one verse, and I forget the verse. I think it was like Mark 2.17, uh, whatever, a verse of Scripture and I want you to study it. I want you to meditate on it for 30 minutes. And I want you to write down 50 things that you've learned out of that verse. 50 things. 30 minutes. Go. So, I mean, these little boys started working. And, and so they would, you know, they'd think in another 30 minutes. And, you know, and anyway, at the end of the 30 minutes, she turns to the, little, the group of boys and she says, Now, um, what life-changing lesson did you learn from that text? And almost every one of the boys offered something out of the text that grew out of... And here was her question. This, was the, this is the point. She said, at what point in the 30 minutes did that come? Did it come at the five-minute mark? Not one person lifted their hand. The 10-minute mark. Now, this, this life-changing truth out of this text, did it come at the five-minute mark? No. Did it come at the ten-minute mark? No. The first time any one of those boys lifted their hands and said that they really learned something from the text came at the 20-minute mark. One verse poured over 
he said, he said most of them came at the 25 minute mark. One verse pouring over the verse and, and, and it yielded its beauty at the 25 minute mark. And that was the lesson that the woman was trying to, she was trying to teach them that the scripture is to be meditated on, not simply read. And so, guys, the way that we read the Scripture sometimes yields very, very little to us. We find a verse for the day. And it's kind of catchy and we kind of like it, etc. But the beauty of the text is something that is... um, I mean, the the, the Word of God is a layered message, folks. It has this layer and this layer and this layer and this layer. and, And it doesn't yield itself to casual perusal. I say all of that to say this. When I read this sentence, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. That, of course, was first said by Isaiah. Then it's picked up by Paul as he is, as he is in this discussion about saving faith. And it, and you can see his little heart begin to leap as, as he pauses. It's kind of an expostulation. You know what that is? It's like he, Mm, 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 wow! That's an exp- that's an expostulation. He kind of, I mean, that how beautiful the feet. It means nothing to the meaning of the text. It's just the apostle Paul saying, "Gosh, isn't this great?" Now, here's my point, guys. What are the, what are the marks of saving faith? No, 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 no. What are the marks of right hearing? I said last week it was obedience. I want to suggest to you that the other mark of right hearing is joy. <laughs> um, when people truly and rightly hear the gospel, They know what it means to say, oh, how beautiful are the feet of those who share the good news. There's an element to it, guys. let Let me put it in the form of a question. Has the gospel made you glad? Has your hearing of the gospel made you glad? If not, some, something is something is amiss. I don't know exactly what, and I'm not here to. I'm just telling you: has the gospel, has what you've heard, made you glad? Oh, how beautiful! <laughs> There's just this expostulation, gang. I would suggest to you that the Christian normalcy, the normal position for the Christian is one of joy. Now, let me make haste. I am not suggesting that it does not include lament. Gang, read the book of Psalms and you will find lament. I read two of them this morning, Psalm 55 and Psalm 56. Both laments. I'm not saying that there are not times of lamentation. But I am saying that Christian normalcy is joy. You know, one of my heroes is a guy by the name of Martin Lloyd-Jones. And I don't know of anybody, I don't know of anybody who is a better better handler 
He's called the Prince of Expositors in my world. But Lloyd-Jones was a medical doctor. He left uh, medicine and became the pastor of Westminster Chapel in London. Um, oh, my. If you think I've taken long in Romans, you ought to read him. But, but anyway, he makes this observation. He says, the greatest sin among Christians. And this is a little bit overstated, I think, a little bit over the top. But there's a point here. The greatest sin among Christians is they're not happy. I'm saying to you that Christian normalcy is joy. And, I, and I wanna, I've got several passages that I want you to see, and I want to wrap it up. Uh, but this, this, let, let me just kind of go through this. One of them I want you to look at. But, for instance, Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15, it contains three parables. What's the, what's the most famous parable of Luke 15? Prodigal son. Luke 15. It's called the lost and found of the New Testament. There's the lost sheep, there's the lost coin, and there's the lost son. But what do you remember about the parables of the lost sheep and the lost, lost coin? And by the way, it just doesn't say it in the, in the prodigal son, but it's there. What do you remember about those parables? They say something like this. There is joy in heaven when somebody embraces this, this message. When somebody is found. There's joy in heaven, guys. You know, heaven's full of joy, but we ain't got much of it. There's something wrong there. L- let me show you this, guys. This I'd, I'd like for you to see. If you can find John 16. This is the, the Olivet Discourse. This is uh, right before Jesus is arrested. Um, but in uh, John 16, beginning at verse 20. John 16, 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but... Your sorrow will be turn, will turn into joy. Now, guys, do you know what he's referring to there? I mean, that's, it's, he says, you know, you're going to weep and lament because they're going to watch Jesus get crucified. And then something is going to happen that's going to turn your lamentation into joy. What is that? The resurrection. It's going to turn it into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she ha- she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Here it is. So also you have sorrow now. But I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice. And no one will take your joy from you. Oh, No. Well, how do we explain the absence of it among us? You know, guys, there is a statement over here in, in, in verse 7 where Jesus says, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. I don't think we believe that. Jesus says, you know, they're pulling on his legs, don't do this, don't do this. And he says, you know what, no, no, wait a minute, it's, it's to your advantage that I go. Oh, but if I could have only seen him, if I could only have seen one of his miracles, if I could only walked in the own, you know, been on the Sea of Galilee with Jesus, I'd have been fine. Jesus says, wrong. It is to your advantage that I go. Because if I don't go, right there he says, uh, nobody's going to send the helper. But when I send the helper, everything's going to be fine. And you're going to be in a position where joy, nobody's going to take it away from you. All right, Luke 15, John chapter 16, Acts chapter 2. You know, right after Pentecost uh, happened, 
and they're all preaching the gospel out there and, you know, in the streets of Jerusalem. And what is it? What is the charge that is leveled against those people? The charge is they're drunk. They're delirious. Oh, my goodness. Oh, that there might be a little bit of restoration of delirium among us. Well, I mean, what, 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 were they, what were they observing? Oh, look at them. They're just out of control. I mean, look, I'm in mean, my goodness. I had no expectation. They must be. Oh, I guess they're drunk. Tell me this. When? When in your whole Christian experience, in the entirety of it, would anyone have ever mistaken you for inebriated? Because of your joy over this, this message that you've got. Philippians 4.4. 4. Um, rejoice in the, in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Is that not meant for us? Well, yeah, I'm afraid it is. But here's my favorite, guys. Here's one I want you to see. This is in uh, Matthew 13. And I, I, you know, I love to show you things, and I hope you haven't seen this, but if you have, uh, bear with me. But in Luke chapter 13, excuse me, I'm sorry, Matthew 13. Matthew 13 has got probably 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 10 parables in it. Matthew 13 is known for all of its parables, but let me show you this one. Uh, verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then, look at it. In his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. This thing is so overwhelming to me that I'll sell whatever I have to sell and give up whatever, I turn my back on whatever I have, and I'm going to do it because that's what you're supposed to do. I'll do it because of the joy in his joy he goes and sells what he has to sell so that he can have this thing. He is is overtaken with the joy of what he's discovered. Gang, I'm saying that joy is one of the true marks of, is one of the marks of true hearing. It is, it is the intellectual, I'm not talking about that uh, as an academic. It is the, <laughs> let me use it in its pejorative sense. The intellectual who says, I've heard that. I know that. Ho-hum. That's not right hearing, folks. Right hearing says, how beautiful are their feet? How beautiful are those feet that brought me glad tidings of great joy? How much joy do you see in the Christian church today? Tell me this. How much joy do you see in Grace Evangelical Church? I would suggest to you that at least one of the reasons that non-Christians have so little interest in what we've got to offer is because of the absence of joy among us. You know, there's a whole evangelistic 
um, component to this discussion. That is, our evangelism falls on deaf ears because, I mean, who wants to be like them? Who wants to be like us? You know, guys, the early church did not have revivals and crusades. She didn't need to. Because the non-Christian world wanted what those guys had. I, I, I'm telling you, we Christians, we're going to have to get some happy feet. Some, some beautiful feet. And, and I want to close by giving you some reasons to have happy feet. I just, I, I want to close. I got six minutes left. I want to close by giving you some reasons that I hope will prompt some joy among us, among you, in you. First of all, give some thought to what you were and who you were before you met Jesus Christ. Tell me this. Had you stayed on that path, where do you think you would be today? Hmm? Had you not met Jesus Christ, had you never heard and embraced the gospel, what do you think life would look like for you tonight? Guys, I am not what... I think I've told you this before, but I'm telling you, my wife will tell you the truth of this statement. When I was with Procter & Gamble, I had three goals. And then I found out, oh, this is no fun. That is, selling... Cake mix and shortening. But um, my three goals were to make a lot of money, to climb very high in Procter & Gamble, and to buy a boat. That was it. That's what I lived for. Now, when I think about the direction that my life was headed at age 22, it makes me glad that that I that somebody came and brought the gospel to me. I don't want that life. You know, I have a friend, his name's Jim Bland, and Jim Bland said to me one day, and I, I'm telling you, I agree with him. If there were no heaven and there were no hell, I would still want to be a Christian. Because I don't want that life that I had. I don't want that. It was... I, <laughs> I don't know whether I've got time, but... You know, I work out on Monday mornings, and I don't have time. But I, I was doing this thing that I, I do three sets on it, and it just almost rips my shoulders out of the sockets every time I do it. But there were two men next to me, and, and Monday morning, I mean, I fit right in because it's the it's the senior citizen crowd over there on 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 Monday mornings. And but I'm one of the youngsters there, and um, but there were two guys that were sitting next to me on these benches, and I I had these dumbbells. I think there were 90 pounds that I was pushing up. And was it 90 or was it, was it 80? I forget. But, um, and these two senior citizens were talking about what they were doing, what they did with their weekend. And, and I thought, that's what you do? Now, maybe, maybe when you're 35 and 45, you've got all this hip stuff to do and you're chasing your kids after soccer games and you're running to the ball game. But let me tell you something. It's going to end like that. It, it, I'm glad I, I, that's not where my life is headed. I don't want to do that. That makes me glad. Second thing, there is a lot of discussion, even in the non-Christian world, about whether there is 
a heaven or there is a hell. Whether God has wrath against sin. Okay, I happen to believe that he does. But whether I'm right or wrong, let me just tell you this much. I will never have to taste and experience if I'm right. I'll never have to taste. I will. The wrath of God will never touch me. I am everlastingly safe. You know, you've heard this little, little maxim, you're not ready to live until you're ready to die. I didn't make that up. I don't know, but I've heard it a dozen times. But I'm telling you, you're not ready to live. I mean, if you still think there's some kind of Damocletian sword hanging over your head, have a great life, folks. But that thing's gone for us. I never have to worry about that thing again, ever, fourth, third. I am completely, fully, everlastingly forgiven. Guys, um, how many of you in the last six months have lost sleep at night because your conscience tormented you? I hope none of you. Guys, I don't I have sleeping issues, but it's not because my conscience is gnawing at me. It's because this motor gets started and it's hard to shut it off at times. But my conscience, J.C. Ryle once said, there is nothing that quiets a guilty conscience like the blood of Jesus sprinkled on it. Your conscience tormenting you, not mine, folks. I am forgiven. You know what? I'm not only forgiven for what I did in high school, which I don't want anybody to know about, and college, that wasn't too pretty either. I'm forgiven for what I did this morning. And you know what? I'm forgiven for what I'm going to do tomorrow morning. That makes me glad. Um, And then finally, I'll read you this and we'll quit. This is number four. You know, it, it, it... it troubles me that if somebody called us and said, you just won the lottery, we would really be glad. But being told that I'm absolutely forgiven, that the wrath of God will never touch me, that, that, I don't, that I, my life has changed completely, that doesn't make us glad. Here's the fourth one. This is out of 1 John chapter 3. Um, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. That's called the beatific vision, ladies and gentlemen. Because when we... Because when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. That's quite a future that's waiting you, awaiting us. Things that... That ought to make us glad. I, and I, and I, I say this in, and I close. If some of that doesn't bring joy, something's wrong. I'll let you figure it out, but something ain't right. Because to consider that my past is covered and my future is a beatific vision. That'll make me glad. Let's quit.
Our Father, I, I do pray that you will uh, stir up in the hearts of your people such a um, grasp of and and that assimilation of truths that we would never, ever, ever, ever be described as sour, as cynical. Lord, might there be an element of we're really enjoying being who we are because of what Christ has done for us. Might that be found among us in large measure. We ask it, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks and good night.